0: Welcome to City Talks, a monthly podcast looking at the big issues facing UK cities and the latest thinking in urban policy. I'm your host, Andrew Carter from the Think Tank Centre for Cities. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to this episode of City Talks. Today, my guests are Ian Golden and Tom Lee Devlin. Ian is Professor of Globalization and Development at the University of Oxford, and Tom is Global Business Correspondent at The Economist. And they are the authors of a new book called Age of the City, Why Our Future Will Be Won or Lost Together. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Uh, congratulations on the new uh, book, literally out uh, as we uh, speak. Um, and we're going to explore some of the themes and issues in the book. Um, let's start with uh, the way that you you frame the book. So you deliberately frame the uh, cities and what cities are doing and how they're performing in a number of kind of big global uh, trends: international trade, supply chains technological development, climate change, pandemics, inequality, loneliness, amongst others. Um, Say a little bit about why you adopted that approach and how did that enlighten the way that you then thought about cities? Ian, do you want to kick us off?
1: Yeah. I think we've come to realise that cities hold the key to our future for a wide variety of reasons. Uh, The first is sort of the simple arithmetic one, which is most people in the world now live in cities, well over half the world's population, rising very rapidly to maybe two thirds within the next 20 years. Uh, So what happens in cities has a massive impact on the world's population, uh, and we are not going to address the key challenges we face, be they poverty or climate change or stopping pandemics or loneliness, and others without addressing them as cities as the key central organizational basis for that. So that's one reason why we have a big frame. And the second is I think we're deeply uh, committed to a better understanding of the way that cities have driven progress. Cities are where solutions are found. Cities are much more productive than the rest of our economies. cities are the driving edge, as it were, of societal change, of civilizational change, not necessarily always for the better, they're also the place where um, terrible things can start, as we know from history, Uh, and revolutions start in cities uh, that can be very progressive and bring positive changes, and they can bring very negative changes uh, too. But they are this driving force, this cauldron of change, uh, economic change, societal change, political change, uh, derived from cities. Uh, so those were two primary reasons. And um, so sort of I came to it over many years, because I've been interested in why cities are becoming more important, uh, more rapidly transforming, and why this central, pivotal role of, of cities is becoming much more significant. You know, you'll be aware of some of the books of the early phases of globalization, like Tom Friedman's The World is Flat, uh, or Francis Cancross's uh, The Death of Distance, which suggests that things could happen ever, anywhere, basically. And instead, what we're seeing is a world that's becoming much more spiky, much more uneven, where cities are increasingly... Are pulling away from the rest of countries. And it's trying to understand that, uh, what the implications are and what can be done about it, uh, is in periods of rapid technological change uh, and economic change uh, that also lie at the heart of, of the book.
0: Brilliant. Tom, I in your thoughts on, on that and obviously um, part the, the majority of the book Looks at cities in in a developed world context, although you you give you know you cite lots of examples about cities in in development world and draw implications of the developed world for the development world. But just add your thoughts into you know the framing and how that helped you to get into some of those big questions and big issues.
2: yeah. yeah I mean, I, I think when you're coming at any problem, whether it's inequality or growth or climate change, we bring some kind of uh, lens or unit of analysis into the way that we understand that. And oftentimes that unit of analysis is the country. Um, but I suppose uh, one of the ideas that really guided us in, in this book is really, as Ian was saying, um, the the forces that shape life in cities increasingly are the forces that shape life in the world as a whole uh because a, a, an increasing share of the world lives in cities and so really i think to to understand and, and ultimately to tackle some of the big challenges confronting the world today that unit of analysis of, of the city is is really vital
0: yeah okay so um you, you talked a little bit there in in a comments around um Cities as the engines of progress, as you you know, and it's not just from an economic point of view, but it's also from a cultural point of view, from a politics point of view, and from an environmental point of view. And you also said, you know, cities are becoming more important, which is in a sense that you know the opposite of what some commentators, as you label, you know, it, um, highlighted, too thought was gonna going happen. So say a little bit about what the mechanism, why are the engines of progress and why have they become materially more uh, important over the last uh, few decades?
1: Yeah, cities um, bring together people uh, in remarkable ways, uh, allowing people to coordinate, to specialize, Uh, and to pollinate ideas. They also home to much more diverse groups of people uh, than other parts of the country. And we know increasingly from literature on innovation, um, uh, management literature and other literature, that diversity of all types is vital for innovation and originality uh, in ideas. And it's this ability uh, of individuals to feel comfortable in cities, uh, whatever their own personal identities are, that is, I think, unique to cities. You can find like-minded people pretty easily um, in cities. But more than that, you can find what you need to do what you want. So if you're a business, you can find the people, you can find the capital, you can find the inputs, the expertise, and you can find the markets um, in cities. Uh, And the more complex the business, and as we move from manufacturing, which was largely based on locational requirements like coal or um, a port or whatever, uh, as we move increasingly to a knowledge economy, that complex system becomes more and more important. For the way that businesses develop, and it also is the case that we that people are developing more and more diverse tastes. You want a particular type of food. You want a particular type of massage. You want to see a particular type of entertainment. You want to find like-minded people when you (coughs) socialize. So, these aspects of cities have become more and more important uh, as societies progressed. As uh, people have defined the individual identities more. And also, as firms have become more complex and specialized in what they do, uh, this need to be together and to cooperate has become greater uh, and more effective. And, and that's really what's driving the frontiers of change.
0: Yeah, that's great. Tom, c- come come in on that. But also, you you know, you talked a little bit about about you know thinking about what's the you know what's the unit of an of analysis when you're thinking about you know big big trends that are happening almost at the you know at the global scale. And I suppose you know interested in your thoughts around you know some as we see some of our cities quite dramatically changing in the way that Ian and for the reasons that Ian's laid out. You know how do the then cities relate to their nations? You know should we think about London as still being part of the UK and New York as still as part of America and so on and so on? I mean how do you How do you think about that? Did they become so different that, you know, they happen to inhabit similar space, but actually everything else is entirely different? What are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I think one reason why uh, places like London and New York have uh, received um, uh, or or been the the lightning rod for so much criticism uh, among sort of populist movements over the last decade or so is in fact this impression that they've become increasingly disconnected from the countries in which they are located you know um uh someone living in in New York uh working in say financial services may travel to other global cities like London or Singapore multiple times a year and never set foot in a in a city like Baltimore or Detroit in their lives um and, of course, as as we well know, the performance of big globally connected cities like London and New York has been much stronger than other slightly smaller and often more sort of industrially focused cities, like some of the ones I mentioned a moment ago over the past few decades. Um, but I think those cities are, are vital anchors for the national economies in which in which they are located as Ian said uh big cities are incredibly productive particularly in in innovative sectors uh there's lots of evidence that um, being close by to uh top universities to other um uh industries in, in adjacent fields is, is incredibly important for driving innovation in, in sectors like digital technology and in, in uh, biotech and medical research and those are really the the industries that are driving so much uh, growth in today's economy. so you know absolutely I think places like New York and London are are vital to, to the health and vibrancy of the wider national economies but you know one of the challenges is that they've become increasingly inaccessible places to live for, for such a large swathe of, of the population in, in countries like America and, and Britain, particularly because of unaffordable housing. You know, if you look at uh, the increase in um, median house prices to median incomes in a country like Britain, it's, it's increased across the board, uh, across the country, but it's increased much faster in London than it has in, in cities like say, Manchester.
0: And do you think that then that sort of bleeds into, uh, you know, contaminates more generally the way that we then think about, you know, the role of cities and, you know, the, the, the sort of upsides of that, because, you know, some of our most our fam- most famous cities often have some of these challenges, which we'll get into in a little bit more detail. But, you know, you, we talk about, you know, the, some of the success, that those big cities, places like London and New York and and Paris, those that are, you know, familiar, you know, they're well, they're world famous in some respects, but because they feel, they can feel so different from the countries that they're in. You talk about this in the book, you know, you have a chapter that's termed leveling up, right? mm. That's all about worries about, The successful places and the non-successful places. So, do you think that you know? Do you think there's a risk that the successful places then that sort of somehow colours how we view cities more generally as kind of you know movements of good and and places of progress?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think there is a challenge in in describing cities as engines of progress with that sort of broad brush when you look at places um, that have not been, um, uh, thriving for, for a number of years now. Um, you know, I think the reality is, is that cities can enter spirals of decay. Um, and we have plenty of examples of that, um, over recent years, uh, de has obviously been a, big, been a big challenge, uh, for, for many cities that, um, in, the, in the middle of the 20th century were were really uh, driving a lot of upward economic mobility for people from, from lower educational backgrounds. Um, so yes, I, I think it is important to keep in mind that not all cities are equal in the sense of uh, the amount of upward mobility that they are providing to their citizens, to the amount of, of progress that they are driving.
0: Yeah, Ian, coming on that, you know, I should have said yeah, I, sense, it's I, the age of the city, but but not every city, right? I mean, that's partly, that's, no. a, that's a truism.
1: Yeah, I mean, what's happening is some cities are becoming uh, much more dynamic uh, and basically leaving a lot of other cities behind, older cities, manufacturing cities um, behind, and there the, are the a number of massive challenges and reasons for this, we've, we've mentioned unaffordability, but when you look at the data on moving to cities, uh, you see that it's basically slowing down. In other words, the whole idea that you, one of the ways to escape poverty or improve your life chances was move to a dynamic city, uh, that's increasingly difficult uh, because of affordability, but also commuting times have increased dramatically Uh, public transport systems are under pressure. So even where people live relatively close to a dynamic city with very low unemployment, uh, they're often stuck in pockets of desperation uh, nearby, but can't get to the cities uh, to get employment uh, for various reasons. And uh, it's not only about housing and Transport. It's also about things like school places, uh, care homes for elderly parents, the ability to uh, to move for dual-income people to get two jobs, uh, and that's one of the transformations that happen. That's happening at the moment. Is a lot more families have dual income. Uh, so there's lots of reasons why mobility is slowing down, uh, and that entrenches inequalities and it entrenches resentment against dynamic cities because although you know that the incomes are higher there when you work it all out actually you might be worse off by going there because of once you've paid for all these other costs and we have data in the book that shows that uh, so they basically impenetrable uh, for people that are locked out of them and that leads to a lot of resentment uh, I think it's it's one of the reasons why we see this rising anti-metropolitan city populism, and one of the, the dangers we point to in the book. It's very important that we don't allow uh, the levelling up agenda, which is you know well intentioned to spread the wealth more widely across countries and to help places that are being left behind. Uh, we don't allow that to become a levelling down agenda. Mm. Uh, in which case the whole economic growth would slow down. Um, there would be much less tax available for redistribution. There'd be much more innovation. Productivity would slow. Uh, and how one overcomes that, I, I believe, is by addressing the real issues, which are at the heart of the anger about this divide between dynamic cities and the rest.
0: Yeah, and in the book, you look at so the the, the distribution of city performance across different uh, countries, United States, Britain, France, Germany, uh, Japan. There's variations, there's similarities, but there are some differences, noticeably uh, you've got United States on the one hand, you know, kind of broad distribution around the average. Uh, Britain and France looking a little bit like each other. You know, London and Paris playing outside roles, but Japan noticeably different in the way that it's it's distributed economic activity or productivity. So just 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 take us through. Just give us a sort of uh, a snapshot of of your of you know your thoughts on on that kind of analysis and what that tells us.
1: Yeah, and as Tom has mentioned, um, this phenomena of some cities pulling away from the rest, typically uh, a few, very few cities pulling away from the rest, is not global. Uh, and there are places we can learn from, including Japan and the other one in, in Europe. Germany has been particularly good at spreading uh, growth and distribution uh, across multiple centers. You know, perhaps no no accident that both of those countries suffered from a devastation of their leading cities uh, in the Second World War, uh, and rebuilding, uh, of a a new economy that doesn't have that long legacy of old cities uh, in the same way, uh, or had it, but was very deliberately overcome uh, in a policy uh, setting. Um, often with very uh, advantageous lending rates uh, from the advanced countries through the World Bank and through the Marshall Plan and, and other structures. Um, so there's a, a different dynamic in those. There's also in the U.S. the growth of some cities, which are, are becoming much more dynamic uh, in recent years, but those already remain the exceptions. Um there's only a limited number of cities that can become really dynamic. Uh, and a, a key question, I think, for national policymakers is, what does one do about that? Um, and the book points to, to many ways in which it can be addressed. But I think a way that's not going to be very successful is basically saying we've got to stop the dynamic cities growing. Um, because that's going to slow the growth of the economies.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Tom, come in on that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just building on that, I think another important lesson from both Germany and Japan is that creating some semblance of regional balance in terms of economic opportunity does require commitment over multiple decades. So if we take the example of Japan in the period after the the Second World War, Uh, the initial policy of the government was to build an economy based on kind of three dominant cities, that was Tokyo, Osaka, and Nagoya, Um, the Pacific Belt, it was referred to, Uh, and that worked for a time, but it did lead to sort of significant divergence in in opportunity uh, in those cities compared to elsewhere in the country. And so sort of following that, in the decades afterwards, there was a, a deliberate policy of trying to build out Um, industries in in other parts of the country. One thing that helped with that was the um, spreading of the high-speed rail network, uh, which made it much easier to um, have uh, vibrant uh, cities um, outside of those kind of three that had been invested in for a period of time. And then in Germany's case, Uh, after the reintegration of of East and West Germany, there was a a deliberate effort over many years to bring cities like Leipzig um, up to kind of a a higher standard of living through uh, support for uh, local services, uh, through federal funding, through initiatives around uh, supporting innovation ecosystems in those countries. And so, you know, I think one of the, the reasons that, we see in both germany and japan uh, um less of a uh less of a severe divide in terms of the economic prospects of of different cities is, is just because there has been this sustained commitment over many successive governments yeah no very yeah, there's a it's an important point around you know it's not just leaving those
0: places to uh to, to fend for themselves as it were uh you know national governments of different persuasions have to have a sort of national picture and perspective on what it is that they need to do in the way that they need to make complementary investments uh, into those areas to help them uh to continue to um to succeed and, and thrive. Um, let, let's move to so it's interesting when I reading the book. Um I got, you know, a sense I got on the one hand, you know, the the, the the sort of optimism uh and the positivity that you you definitely had for you know for cities and you know all of what can be achieved. But I also got a real sense that you were you know there's a sort of set of worries that you have about some of the dynamics that are going on you know within cities, but also then some big dynamics that are affecting um cities as well, so Ian, come back to you So, say a little bit about those worries that you that you see going on with the city we've talked about you know one or two already or we'll touched on them a little bit around division segregation inequality uh you know disinvestment, but also I think you you know for a, for its Multiple reasons, worried about you know sprawl and the sort of outwards expansion of uh, cities over time enabled by uh, primarily enabled by the the motor car. and you know that sort of undermining of of the very functioning and purpose of cities. So just say a little bit about those internal worries, and then we'll we'll get on to things like the pandemic and remote working and climate change and how you think that might affect as well. So kick us off on the internal worries,
1: yeah. There are many uh, internal worries about cities. Uh, the, the suburbanization of cities uh, and growing sprawl uh, has given a lot of people nice homes in the suburbs, uh, but comes at an immense cost uh, in terms of commuting, uh, in terms of the finances and the dynamics of finances of cities, particularly where different Local authority controls the inner city to the where the suburbs now are. Um, we've seen ghettos developed uh, in inner cities, the destruction of inner cities, uh, people being being confined to places with very low job prospects. Uh, not least in many US cities, and that's often taken a racial di- dimension as well. Also, has been the case in London. That's one set of issues, and um, it's it's partly being reversed by gentrification now, uh, which is which is a very interesting reversal of this trend, but creating a new set of problems uh, and making cities unaffordable to poor people uh, who are pushed out uh, far away and often can't get to to where the jobs are, uh, and and has all sorts of implications for schooling and care and access to medicine etc. And we saw this. Uh, having a devastating consequence during the pandemic. So how cities transform and the the valuations of properties uh, is key and who gets the income from them. Uh, And that, of course, is highly relevant when we talk about remote work as well. Mm. Uh, Another phenomena has been uh, increasing concentration of single people in cities, partly driven by the cost of living, but also the postponement, um, increased aging of cities in terms of uh, people within cities uh, getting married and having kids. Uh, And uh, that has had many positive benefits. It's in very vibrant inner city areas. It compounds the gentrification problems. But it's also the case uh, that it's been associated with a very rapid rise of loneliness uh, amongst both young people and elderly people many cities are aging very rapidly uh, as well and how one overcomes loneliness and this strange just juxtaposition uh, that we see in many cities now of very close proximity but isolation Uh, and that's to do with the decline of community systems within cities Um, community clubs bingo halls sports facilities uh, people shopping locally on their neighborhood shops out on their blocks, uh, as opposed to having to go to a supermarket where they anonymized. Um, There are many reasons for the increase in loneliness and decline of communities um, in cities, but they need, again, part of the agenda is how do you rebuild this and overcome uh, loneliness in cities, uh, another vital dimension. And then the issues of pollution, of course, not least um, the rise of the use of cars has been associated with massive increase in urban pollution, again, after the decline in urban pollution, after coal-fired heating um, uh, and cooking was was stopped um, in many cities. So how one overcomes pollution, the quality of air, uh, and uh, the issues around that as well as water pollution in major riverborne cities and seaborne cities is 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 very significant. Then we, we we'll talk separately about pandemics, uh, climate change and remote work, which are compounding these challenges.
0: Yeah, yeah we'll come on to them. Tom, add in your sort of thoughts on the on the worries, you know, the sort of dynamics within our within
1: our cities. Sorry, there's one that I didn't mention, which I think Tom Tom can cover as well, which is growing inequality. Inequality, yeah, Tom. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, so I mean, in the book we talk about um, inequality between cities, but also we spend a lot of time talking about inequality within cities. And uh, what's quite striking is that um, whilst the sort of overall uh, economies of big dynamic cities like New York and, and London have have outgrown uh, their national economies. Um, the rate of inequality in those cities has also grown more quickly. And the reality is is that you know when cities aren't designed well, they can actually reinforce. Uh, economic inequality over time you know if you if you go back um at at previous points of history it it was fair to to characterize cities as places of um significant upward mobility for people with um lower educational backgrounds so Uh, The presence of jobs in in manufacturing and, and say, clerical work that didn't typically require high levels of education provided an upward path uh, to to the middle class or people from a diverse range of backgrounds. As those jobs have disappeared, um, the challenge for cities is is how you ensure that they become places where all people can thrive rather than just a small group of highly educated professionals. Sorry. Go on, Tom. Carry on. And a big part of that is what you do about education. Uh, I, I think the reality is is that a lot of cities are characterised by huge disparities in in educational outcomes from neighbourhood to neighbourhood, based on the level of income in those neighbourhoods. And you know, one big issue in in the US that we see is that schools are funded based on rates collected in The local area which means that when you have richer people living in an area you have better schools and so that just perpetuates the the educational advantage that that the next generation has in in those areas and perpetuates the disadvantage of of poorer communities so you know there are many uh dynamics in cities that that really can uh, reinforce inequality over time that, that we talk about in the book
0: yeah, and and Tom, and come get your thought on this as well. I mean, you know, when you talk about those sort of things, what, what, what's your sense as to, you know, is it because you know those problems, those worries? Is it because we've been surprised by you know the the success of cities or the, the continued or expanded success of them? In a the sense, we thought that they weren't they weren't going to be important, so we didn't really think about these things. Or is your, is your sense that you know they're complex systems? We don't really understand how they work. We don't understand how the sort of various dynamics and aspects in, interact with each other to produce you know the uh, the trends and the patterns that we see. What, what, what's your you know, what's your kind of take on that? I mean, I, I always, I don't have a very good answer myself on that, mm-hmm. but I was just curious as to what, you know, why you, what your take on it is.
2: Well, I mean, I, I think you're right that cities are complex systems. And, um, you know, when, when you're trying to understand how they work, you need to consider everything from housing markets to education systems to public transit systems and, and the way that all those things come together to shape the outcomes that that people have living in those cities and living in different areas of those cities. Uh, because as, as we were saying, um, people's prospects can vary significantly from from one neighborhood to another in in a city. Um, but I also think there are uh that there is a, a long history of, of policy failures around cities as well. Um, and you know I think one uh particular challenge that a lot of cities have Have grappled with in recent decades is the fact that um, finances and uh, decisions are made in a very fragmented way, where you have kind of a a city government that really is the government for sort of an inner urban area um, and and is separate from the body that is responsible for, say, a nearby suburb. Whereas in reality, uh, the the say wider um, London area or the or the Greater London area or the the Greater New York area is one interconnected system and so sort of this this disconnect between the the component governments I think is is a recipe for all sorts of um, distortions in in decision making and uh, and public finances.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Fragmented governance. Uh, often with competing incentives or uh, yeah. misaligned incentives, I think is a yeah. is a really uh, under undervalued, I think, um, reason. Ian, what's your take on you know, in a sense, of, have we been surprised by urban, you know, in the sense that we haven't really given haven't given them enough uh, of enough thought, and that's why we see some of the policy failures that Thomas just was touching on.
1: I do think um, that they suffer from neglect. Uh, from national politicians who often see them as a countervailing threat, um, they they all they seem as a threat politically. Uh, so powerful mayors can go on to be prime ministers and have done in many countries, um, but they also see them uh, as as a threat economically. They don't want to devolve power, economic power to cities, uh, and. The UK is one of the most centralised in that respect, uh, the failure to devolve power. Uh, what we see from cities around the world, of course, is that that cities are incredible. They are very complex and uh, they're not easy to manage, but when you can put these things together in terms of the, the jurisdictional responsibility being uh, matched to the issues, in other words overcome the fragmentation, um, with some real resource, uh, cities have transformed themselves. Uh, So the the problem that cities face is not generalized. It's not that all cities are facing the same problem. Many cities uh, have done a remarkably good job in overcoming a lot of issues. Uh, If you look at All the the subjects that I've talked about, like, and Tom has, like inequality, like pollution, like loneliness, um, like the unaffordability of housing. These are issues that different cities have a very different record on and understanding why it's the case. Uh, how some cities are able to overcome them is part of the purpose of the book. Um, There's no destiny. that This is just a very complex problem. We're not going to solve it. That's not what history shows us. Uh, History shows us that cities are vitally important. And if we give them the right resource and attention and leadership, uh, then uh, they're going to be a key part of solving the big challenges that people face.
0: And is that, in your sense, the sort of key... You know, in a sense, the places that you've seen do well against some, you know, or at least trying to um, mitigate some of those bigger factors. Yeah. What is it? Is it is it that because they're, you know, they're empowered? Uh, institutions or entities within, within a national context? Cause we know that, you know, some cities are you know, pretty powerful institutions or entities within a national context, others much less. So is it, is it empowered uh, or enlightened urban, urban leadership? Is it luck? Like, I mean, how would you sort of, do, how would you describe this? Can you describe the success stories? Can you, can you generalize to an extent from some of the the, the successful places?
1: I think it's all of those. It requires the combination of good, competent, forward-looking leadership. Uh, It requires fiscal responsibility and and the ability to raise money uh, and then spend it wisely. Uh, it, It requires real power. Uh, that you can actually spend it and make a difference. Uh, It requires coordination because it's got to be integrated into a national system. Uh, And it requires, I think, the involvement of citizens, uh, uh, city dwellers, particularly, who have got to want it to work. These are also great places where people subvert the best intentions of city planners um, because they just don't make sense to them. Uh, and just leads to more division. So, it it requires this coming together. Uh, The bigger the city, the the more difficult many of these things are. But there are great big cities, um, and of course what great cities tend to have is more money. So, they also have more resource and they have more political power. So, they're more able often to address these challenges.
0: Yeah, no, and we'll 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 definitely come on to uh, just to, to you set out some of the the solutions in a general sense that you think that um, more cities or if not all cities should really um, think about and move towards. Um, but in terms of some of those worries, we talked a little about some of the internal ones. You also raised one or two of the uh, external ones, and I guess you were at least in part right in the book. During a period when the pandemic was still around, and remote working was was a thing at least a bigger thing than it had been in in the past and I'd be interested in your take because there's lots of different takes on you know the interaction between remote working and cities and then the system of cities more generally. So just say a little bit about uh, a little bit about that and then we'll get on to some of the um some of the solutions Ian, do you want do you want to kick off on that?
1: Yeah, I think remote working poses a a very significant new challenge uh, to cities. Uh, Effectively, what we've got is many professionals, uh, higher income people who have second homes or the ability to to work from home uh, in the suburbs or elsewhere, who have the privacy, who have the broadband, uh, who have the power to decide whether they're gonna work remotely or not. Uh, are doing so. And the data suggests that this ranges from two to four days a week uh, in North America, and um, in much of Europe. Uh, so the lower income people often do essential work, they have to go to work, and they don't have that choice. Um, and of course, a lot of Other people in the same professions as those that are working remotely, the more junior people, often don't have the privacy, the space, uh, and so on. So they're working from the end of the bed, uh, or they've got a crying baby on their lap. Uh, They don't have the same facilities. So who can work remotely as a first layer uh, effectively, and, and whether they like it or don't like it, is very hierarchical, is very driven by uh, what people have and how much money they have and what where they are in their professions. It's I believe strongly uh, that it's the case, and we discuss this in the book, that virtually all jobs are apprenticeships, and certainly in the knowledge economy, that is the case. Uh, it's certainly true of... Um, professions like medicine, but we're physically there. But it's true also of law and it's true of banking and it's true of architecture and it's true of many, many others. And junior people learn by observation, by informal interactions, not formal. uh, And they're also able to challenge informally uh, when they are together in the workplace. And that is very important also for more senior people to be challenged and to hear the challenge, but not in a a Zoom meeting where everyone's hearing it and it's quite difficult to challenge things. Uh, It also, of course, you build social capital, you build corporate cultures uh, by being together. And so those all get damaged, I think, by remote work. And if you're going to insist that junior people come to the office because we accept their apprenticeships, then more senior people need to come too. I think, in a way, most worryingly, is the economics of this. And there, there are many things happening, but uh, in some places, and it depends on the legal uh, boundaries, uh, people are no longer paying tax uh, in a city jurisdiction, but in, a, say, in another state, like people are paying in Connecticut or have moved to Florida uh, out of New York a low-tax location, Uh, but the ecosystems around offices are being severely damaged, the small businesses, from the barbers to the baristas uh, and everyone else. And, of course, what we're seeing as well is much lower demand for space. And that, combined now and compounded now by high interest rates, is leading to a real crisis uh, in commercial real estate, uh, but not only offices, also retail that surrounds it. Yeah, uh, and with that, the whole ecosystem uh, of cities, and of course, as as the income of cities declines, the the revenue they derive from the business offices and the businesses supporting the offices, the ability to to provide public transport, to provide safety and security, to provide health, also declines. Uh, and so there's a real risk of death spiral uh, coming out of remote work. Uh, we've seen it in New- in San Francisco uh, in very worrying ways. And I think it's a more broad concern. How one responds to this and what one does about it uh, is, is an absolutely crucial question that's facing cities at the moment. And we do have suggestions, including much more mixed residential and uh, and workspaces uh, as part of that. But I think the, the tendency for people to be in the suburbs and to have separate CBDs, which are basically desolate, uh, and people don't live, is, is leading to this threat being much, much more significant. And that's where we're seeing the cutting edge of the problem.
0: Yeah. Tom, Ian sort of started to allude to the solution, I mean, but your take or you know additions on the you know the kind of interesting uh, dynamics around um around remote working, uh, how you think that will, you know, how that will play out, I guess, over the medium to longer term as well as the you know what we've seen in the immediate aftermath, well during, but also the immediate mm. aftermath of the pandemic.
2: Yeah, so so I think the case for fully remote work is not very compelling, Um, so uh, five days a week out of the office. Um, Whilst there are some companies that have said they will experiment with that, I think the reality is is that there are very few that will will stick to that model for many of the reasons that that Ian was was mentioning there around the impact that has on uh, creativity and productivity, on mentorship and learning and so forth. but I think the answer is is slightly more complicated when it gets to hybrid working, so say three days um, in the office. I think the the negative impacts of that are, are a bit more ambiguous, um, and the reality is, is that um, some people enjoy working from home, so you know, you, I think a lot of companies will, will probably, for at least the foreseeable future, continue to offer some flexibility maybe for a couple of days a week out of the office. Um, and so I think that does limit how far people can move away from cities. Uh, you know, I don't think we're going to see that many people settling in remote rural areas longer term. Um, I think most of the centrifugal movement will be into the suburbs, um, you know, rather than than far away from places of work. If you still need to get into the office three days a week, but. As Ian was saying, that still has a very significant impact on, on the economics of public services, uh, public transport, um, you know, local retail ecosystems, particularly in business districts. So not not as much in inner city neighbourhoods because you still have a lot of young people choosing mm-hmm. to live. Um, in in, in inner neighborhoods because of more cafes and restaurants and so on. But the business districts, I think it's a real challenge. I think a perfect case in point of that at the moment is is Canary Wharf, which is obviously going through a a big effort to try and reinvent itself with integrating lab spaces uh, for the life sciences and also trying to add residential um, property uh in that area to make it more of a mixed-use neighborhood and i think that is that is going to have to be the future for cities i think this old model of kind of sent you know uh, a set of rings uh with different functional purposes in a city i think is is increasingly just not going to work i think we're going to have to move to much more of an an integrated mixed-use model
0: Yeah, Uh, and that really connects. I mean, to to, you know, you 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 set out some uh, a set of solutions or 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 some proposals at at the city scale for how you know more cities can be more successful. And we've talked a little bit about about the flip side, I suppose, because you talk a little bit about we talk about you know more affordable housing, try to encourage more density and therefore less sprawl, more public transport, and by definition, less less cars education not just at the school level and uh, and lifelong learning uh, ian come in on that and you just sort of paint a paint a picture of the of the solutions at the city scale and then i i want to because you've got a bunch of stark um diagrams maps pictures of climate change sea levels and what that does to places like new york and shanghai and others uh, i want to i wanted to get say something about you know that's a national stroke global solution in many respects that if we get it if we don't deal with it that will have a massive implication for urban areas but just just say you know this the menu or the suite of trying to get more cities to be more successful and the sort of things that you would you would encourage them to um to prioritize
1: I think what Tom was um, pointing to which is moving away from dedicated, business areas to much more mixed use, bringing people back onto the streets, and of course streets are much cleaner now as we move towards electric vehicles and much quieter uh, over time. So public spaces of all varieties uh, is very important. I think the principles behind the 15-minute city uh, where you can walk or uh, easily get to through public uh, transport to places are very significant. Uh, I think over time what we're going to be seeing in cities is much more local production of things so you know we get we might well get to uh, a point quite soon where we'll be able to grow things for example vertically in places previously that were car parks or maybe even offices um, that have been vacated but aren't because they're so old and don't comply to regulations on climate, et cetera, that they're not going to be used for residential or, or other purposes. So we can envisage cities becoming much more vibrant, uh, much more like uh, cities used to be uh, before they were sort of sterilized um, by, by creating offices and separate suburbs, uh, you get to them by car uh, in a separate way. Uh, and that, I think, is going to make them much more attractive for people to be in. They really are for young people. Uh, and their whole neighborhoods of many, many cities, uh, which are magnetic for young people to live in. And many of them are old, poorer neighborhoods uh, in in that respect. But how you spread that more widely and how you use those strategies to overcome... Uh, inequality, upgrade housing stock, uh, and gem- and spread some of the income benefits uh, is absolutely crucial. And and then, as you say, the the challenges need to be addressed. Cities are um, heat sinks. Uh, cities are very vulnerable uh, to climate change, but they also a potential source of Solutions because they're much more effective in per capita terms uh, in reducing our carbon emissions and greenhouse gases. Yeah, I'm Tom, have to I'm leave in 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 five minutes. I'm of
0: afraid course, afraid. yeah, Tom, Watch just one. come in on on that, and um, and we'll um, we'll wind up to a close because, in a sense, you know, the climate change kind of question, you know, if 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 we don't address it, it will have a catastrophic effect on obviously, you know, lots of places across the globe, but you know, particularly. Some of our big urban areas, which by definition are on, you know, on rivers and or on uh, on seafronts, and that in some respects that requires national and global movements to you know to have much more of a focus or to think carefully about the urban question. I mean, I just want you know, I wonder where where you think we are on some of that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, so so in the book we talk about sort of a whole suite of different uh, policies that we think cities should be looking to adopt. Um, one of one set of those is around adapting to climate change, um, everything from um, improving uh, defences against uh, rising sea levels to increasing the amount of uh, greenery um, in cities to, to reduce temperatures and that, that heat island effect that, that Ian was talking about. And then another suite around what cities can actually do to contribute toward mitigating against climate change. And I think, um, again, there there are many things there to discuss from, you know, uh, uh, waste to, um, to heat to um electrification of public transit systems uh, but i think a big one is actually the physical design of cities i think car based sprawl has been terrible for the environment and a major contributor to emissions um and so i think in, in the book we we really do make um a, a very sort of committed case uh for reconsidering that model. Uh, and, and I think we argue quite strongly for the densification of, of cities, which I think we, we believe has many benefits, um, not just in terms of the environmental impact, but also the way that that can improve uh, a sense of community. Um, it can improve uh, the upward economic mobility of, of residents of, of cities uh, and has many other benefits as well. Yeah, I completely agree with that.
0: Um, definitely agree with that. Uh, Ian, Ian, you, you, close us by, I mean, it's not so much in the book. Um, but, so I want to get, you know, get your thought on, I suppose, the politics of what, what you, what the book is about and, and the argument that you're making. I mean, in a sense, are you, you know, are you optimistic in terms of the, you know, the politics of the proposition that, you know, that, those that are in the, in positions to make the decisions that matter have a, you know, a suitable uh, understanding of the significance of, you know, cities and that and that we are actually in the age of cities as, as is in the title of the book. I mean, just to, just your sort of, you know, your conclusions on that?
1: We're certainly in the age of cities uh, because most people live in cities and cities are the source of our solutions as well as problems. But the reason we've done the book is because we, we we feel there's a need for people to come to a stronger recognition of this. Uh, if we thought the battle was won, there'd be no need for, for the book in a sense. Um, it's because we feel that uh, the points we underline in the book across the board, whether it's on stopping pandemics and slowing climate change or overcoming inequality, overcoming loneliness, uh, creating more dynamic societies and the leveling up agenda. All of these things which we address in the book for global cities, not just the advanced economy cities, uh, are there to be won or lost. And we think that uh, it's so important because the future of humanity depends on it. So, you know, it, it it's not the case that... Um, that the ideas have have got wide recognition, and um, and that it's all going to be fine. It's the case, I think, that we need to convince people of this uh, by showing them the facts, uh, and then believe that um, as rational human beings, we'll make the right decisions uh, in our cities and for humanity.
0: Yeah, uh, as a, I would agree, there, there is there is much. Much to be done, and, and arguments uh, to be made, and to be to be argued. But the, I think the book makes a, a great contribution to uh, to a much needed debate. So I thoroughly recommend it to all our listeners. My guests today have been Ian Golden and Tom Lee Devlin. Thanks for being part of City Talks. Thanks very
1: well, much for bringing
0: us. Good. Thank you for listening to this episode of City Talks. Brought to you by Centre for Cities. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher by searching Centre for Cities. Please rate, review and subscribe if you like what you heard. You can also follow the centre on Twitter at Centre for Cities or like us on LinkedIn for the latest updates on what the centre is up to. If you have any comments on the episode or suggestions for topics we should cover in the future, we'd love to hear from you. Do tweet us or send an email to info at centreforcities.org. The music was from Palace Fires by Johnny Foreigner, used with permission and all rights
1: are reserved.